every time we as Black Americans gain any political power or it appears that we are gaining political power, there is a backlash. It goes all the way back to Reconstruction. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. Later on in the pod, we sat down with Evan Milligan, Shalila Dowdy, as well as Leticia Jackson as we talk about the most recent Supreme Court case before the court talking about voters' rights. It's going to be a great episode, so stay tuned. Happy Thanksgiving, Missy. Happy Almost Thanksgiving, I guess. Yeah, it's about a week away. Yeah, we're about a week away. So. Gearing up. Are you yeah. ready? I think so. Yeah. I mean, you and I have been traveling a lot, but uh, yeah, I'm ready to stay home. We've got some family coming in, so it's going to be a, a good week for us. I am too. Do you, do you have your thankful list ready? I feel like that's just kind of a... Oh my gosh. You know, obligatory. I've been so busy. It's been difficult, but I think I could probably come up with a list. Okay. So since we all know that I top your actual Thanksgiving thankful list. Oh, every single day. I wake up (laughs) each morning and I look towards the heavens and say, Dear Lord, thank you for my co-host and partner in life. (laughs) So what our listeners don't know and won't know at this point is that we have started this podcast about 214 times. (laughs) This is... this (laughs) is started it over because we keep getting tongue-tied or just things fall off the rails. And so right now, that's what makes this even even funnier. (laughs) Absolutely. Through gritted teeth saying yes. (laughs) I love you, dear. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe someday some of that will make it to the outtake. But not today. <laughs> so, in in light of Thanksgiving, I thought it would be fun for us to, to talk about some other things that we're thankful for. Perfect. So, the audience can't wait. Have to listen to us gush all over each other. So, I have come up with some categories. We're going to say what we're which of these categories things we are most thankful for. Okay. All right. So, so quiz time. In a Let's modern go. day context, Mitch. What app are you most thankful for? Oh my gosh. The most thankful I am for an app. Well. And let me just put a disclaimer. All of this has to be clean and family friendly. Okay. Proceed. I have all clean apps on my phone. I trust that. I absolutely do. I well, didn't say I did. <laughs> besides the Bible, of course. Oh, of course. Of, of course. course. Absolutely. Um, I'm probably most thankful for Yelp. Because Yelp. you oh, and okay. well, you and I travel a lot. Okay. And so we're sitting there in a hotel and we're thinking, what are we going to eat for lunch or dinner? And what do we do? Well, you do. Yeah, you look up at Yelp because, yes, so I, in that regard, am most thankful for that because that is something you do and I don't have to do. So you're right. That's a a great answer. I am most thankful for the Sonic app. I can confirm this. And I will say this. I am, that is a close second because you get 
the Diet Coke for me. Right. And so parenthetically, I would say any app that I can order from and pick up and I don't have to talk to an actual human being <laughs> these days. I think that is in Thanks. the gospel somewhere. Jesus said. I'm sure he did. <laughs> Thou shalt not talk, talk to, to people. <laughs> that always makes me happy. So, okay, next. What household appliance are you most thankful for? Oh, geez. You know, you and I recently, in the last couple of years, bought a new dishwasher. Oh. And I have to say, I am really thankful for that. Not only because it cleans the dishes, but it is so super so quiet. quiet. Yeah. Okay, so that's not what I expected you to say. I expected right, again, you to say... this is a family show. <laughs> no, yeah. I expected you to say your Nespresso. What's that? Oh, the Nespresso, yeah. That, that's, the fancy that, coffee thing? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of that. Okay. But yeah, I mean, those are like 1A, 1B. Okay, okay. So my answer to that would be my KitchenAid mixer that you got me a few years ago for Christmas. Oh. I, I just, yeah, uh-huh. I love that. It's just, it's just such a... Score points for the absolutely. old Mitch Randall there. It's such a luxury um, to have that. But you're right about the dishwasher. It is so quiet and it's amazing. Okay. So what is what food are you most thankful for? Oh, my. What food am I most thankful for? You know, you and I have been on a fish kick lately. I've mm-hmm. really enjoyed salmon and orange roughy. But I'm kind of going to go with a staple here, for me at least. I <laughs> I'm about to open a can, ladies and gentlemen. I love a spoonful of peanut, peanut butter. butter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so tell tell the audience why that is problematic. I I don't know because peanut butter was recently recalled. No, I I love a spoonful of peanut butter. I don't and know that that's problematic. I, I end up, you know. I, I hide your pills in there every day. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder I am so spot on these days. I love stuff. It's exactly right. No, I love peanut butter. That's just me. Okay, so mine, I have two. I'm breaking the rules. and chocolate. Oh, yeah. I mean, I yeah. As long yeah. as there's and chocolate in the Do world. Do you dip your in your chocolate? Oh, no, that's gross. <laughs> that's gross. Okay, so what gadget are you most thankful for? You're a gadget guy, so I I know this is going to be difficult for you. I am absolutely a gadget guy. You know, and this is going to sound very self-serving, both to us and to the audience, but we are sitting in front of a soundboard Mm -hmm. and microphones, Mm -hmm. and each week we have the privilege of talking to our audience and to reaching out to them, and then, of course, they reach back to us through their comments. It's just an amazing tool, and I, I just really appreciate that kind of gadget. So the soundboard? Well, just the, the ability to be able to communicate with a larger world outside of our existence. Because if you remember, we started this podcast during the pandemic when everybody was locked down, and you know we've been able to continue that conversation. So I just think that's important. Okay. I just put phone. <laughs> <laughs> but you so. don't talk on the phone. You just text on the phone. And you order Amazon That's stuff on there. It all is related. That's what I'm, I'm just, yeah, our phones. I mean, because they're our connection to, like you just said, our connection to the world Very and our true. connection to people. And, and I mean, I don't know what we would have, how we would have survived 100%. the pandemic without 
that so I guess it kind of is parallel. And the fact that you get to order food and not talk to humans. And not beings. talk to humans. <laughs> as as we're sitting here thinking talking about how thankful we are. We're, we're so thankful we're talking about humans. <laughs> besides Missy, who can it's order like, I want to talk to you. Oh, but not like that. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Okay. So uh we're gonna continue on this this technology uh lane and mm-hmm. say what streaming service are you most thankful for? Oh wow. Now this I love all I mean we live in an, inter- in an entertainment family. Our oldest son is in comedy, all about TV. Our youngest son loves shows. Um, and so you and I, we, we appreciate the streaming, all streaming services. But for me personally, mm-hmm. and it began with the pandemic. Growing up and in my younger days, I was a baseball guy. You know this. Mm-hmm. Played college baseball, loved baseball. I had gotten away from the game, and it was just totally irrelevant to me. During also, the pan- it's kind of boring. But go ahead. It, I agreed, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't want to argue that point. But during the pandemic, I subscribed to MLB.net, and you asked me why it's so boring, just as you said. And during the pandemic, it was I told you. It's the only thing that's live that I can watch. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, I've kept that up. Yeah. And, you know, I, again, I, I, I love the game just because of what it means to me traditionally. But it has to do with something that is live. The game always changes. You can watch a game and something new is always going to happen within that game. So mm-hmm. believe it or not, it's still MLB.net. And, and for why is baseball is it like as slow and as boring as it? Why is it kind of just the feel good sport? I don't I don't know. It's not, but like uh, yeah, you're, it, you're talking it, about a culture. You're talking about yeah. It is the American uh, pastime from the standpoint. It is a talking sport. You do not have to stay necessarily engaged the entire time. You know, football. I, I know you say it's slow. Football is even slower than baseball. Believe it or not, okay. because you got. 10 seconds of action, and then you're just kind of waiting for the next play. Um, but baseball is is chess, and football is checkers. Oh, no, <laughs> folks. You can send that hate mail to Mitch at goodfaithmedia.org. Exactly, right. <laughs> so how about you? Um, I actually, this is confession, I, I don't know what, streaming service I prefer most because I usually (laughs) hand the remote to you and say, find this. All right. So let's go back a few years. The boys are younger. Mm -hmm. You had a hard time with the remote. Oh, geez. Sing the song that they taught you. Sing the song. Wait, I'm going to have to remember. What was the song? HDMI 3 for Apple TV. (laughs) Push the button. You can see, see, see. (laughs) And it was, uh, what was it, HDMI 2 to watch the news. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there ladies and it. gentlemen, but... <laughs> have Missy's technological knowledge. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, it's a wonder I can order a Diet Coke. Exactly. But, exactly. No, okay, so I would say right now, I, I believe my, my favorite kind of go-to shows when uh, Schitt's Creek is one is on Excuse Hulu. Me? Yes. <laughs> And I will say, since you talked about during the pandemic mm-hmm. and since the pandemic, that's just, you know, 
when you're down or when you're low, that's a show you can put on. And it's just such a feel good show. So maybe I would just say Hulu because I think that has yeah, shows. Anyways. Absolutely. Okay. Switching gears a little bit. What experience are you the most thankful for that you've had over the last year? This is very emotional for me. I think it would be for you as well. I absolutely hate the fact that we were in pandemic. But the notion that our two adult sons moved back with us and lived with us for a period of time is something I will cherish for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It's just something that you and I never ex- expected, never thought was going to happen. But to have them with us is worth more than I can even imagine. Again, wish it would not have happened, Mm -hmm. but it did. And I'll just never, never think less of that time. Yeah, I I would agree with that. For an experience, a recent experience, I would say, yeah, the extra, what was it, about four months total that they were both home together um, due to the pandemic shutting their schools down. um, That was as awful as the pandemic was. I knew at that time, I just knew I wanted to cement those memories into my mind because yeah. we would look back on them as far as our little familial unit with mm-hmm. such fondness. And, and that's true. 100%. I would say that's what I'm most thankful for experience-wise as well. Yeah, absolutely. So going into this Thanksgiving week, these are great things to be thankful for. And after Thanksgiving, I cannot wait to share our most precious Christmas uh, experiences and thoughts uh, and so memories. Fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. But until then, we want you to stay tuned because Missy and I sat down with some incredible individuals fighting for voters' rights. You're not going to want to miss this. Hey, listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got three very special guests with us all the way from Alabama. Evan Milligan is Executive Director of Alabama Forward, a coalition of nonpartisan organizations throughout Alabama working to greatly expand the voter base, protect voting rights, and make election systems as accessible as possible. Evan is also a founding board member of Safe Space Montgomery Community Meditation Center. Shalila Dowdy is a native Alabamian. She graduated from uh, S.S. Murphy High School in 2008. She earned a Bachelor's of Science degree in American Legal Studies, pre-law from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 2012. Additionally, in 2017, Shalila earned a Master's of Arts in Leadership Studies from the University of Texas at El Paso. She served six years in the United States Army on active duty. She is currently in the Army Individual Ready Reserves, where she holds a rank of captain and the position of military academy liaison officer. Additionally, she is the president of Stand Up Mobile, a nonprofit that does work centered around voter engagement. Latisha Jackson is president and CEO of Tandeka LLC. Tandeka is over 35 years of experience in successful public policy advocacy, government relations, authentic community engagement, health equity, strategic planning, and coalition and capacity building for non-governmental organization. Jackson is skilled in grassroots organizing, 
authentic community engagement, health equity, crisis communication, and strategic planning. Wow, the three of you are really impressive. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yes, happy to be here. Oh, great. Well, hey, all three of you are a part of a very important case. Merrill versus Milligan, known as Milligan v. Merrill in lower courts, involves a claim brought by black voters challenging Alabama's congressional map drawn in 2021 for violating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And this case has already gone before the Supreme Court. And so before we start asking questions, let's just give a round of of applause for the incredible work that you have done so far. Thank you for standing up for voting rights. Absolutely. So Leticia, let's just, let's start with you. If you wouldn't mind for those of us who are not um, in the legal world, just give us an overview of the case. Our case primarily is about the fact that um, the state of Alabama during redistricting drew the lines that basically crack impacts black populations and communities of interest in several different congressional districts and give it, give us only one congressional district that um, is a majority uh, black district or give us the the greatest opportunity to be able to elect um, a representative of our our choice. And because the population of, of uh, uh, black American, black African-Americans, black, population black citizens in the state of Alabama is 27%. We um, believe and feel that we should have at least two congressional districts where we have an opportunity to elect representatives uh, of the representatives of our choice out of seven. We have a total of seven congressional districts in the state of Alabama. And we all, we have only one that is um, our majority uh, minority district where we have an opportunity to um, elect a representative that can speak to our interests, that can represent us, that understands us, that knows our community, that knows our citizens. Mm, Love that. Now, Evan, you are a named plaintiff in this lawsuit. And so tell us a little bit about what compelled you to to be a named plaintiff and while the lawsuit was filed uh, and while you have seen this through. Why are you so passionate about this? Because Alabama has a a really significant issue with retaining, um, you know, people who are born here, um, who spend a lot of time, have a a lot of energy and dedication and commitment to their communities and um, have great leadership potential. Every year, you know, people that are actually born in the state leave the state um, in great numbers in comparison to places like Georgia or Texas and other Southern states. And one component of that is you have people like Shalila, for example, when you read her credentials, West Point graduate, army captain, she's in law school part-time. She coaches track part-time and um, does civic engagement with stand-up mobile. Why wouldn't this be a person that you want to have a a trajectory to continue growing Mm -hmm. as a public servant? And there are many people like her that I've known. I'm 41, so over the years doing mostly activist work in the state, I've seen countless people who have amazing potential, selfless, great, great ideals, uh, people that like to pass the ball. They like seeing their teammates win. And they inevitably will hit a ceiling here 
in terms of what they feel is possible as far as policy, advocacy, and certainly leadership. So adding a adding a congressional district um, that features, you know, that a, having a second opportunity district where black communities can have a can elect the candidate of choice that won't solve all those issues, mm-hmm. but it does create a pipeline um, that can address some of the issues, and it does offer more chances for leadership development, both for aspiring candidates and the and the sorts of advocacy groups that tend to become involved in those types of races, but also for the electorate as 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 voters, when we're able to learn how to adjust our preferences and our calculations uh, to decide who we want to support during a congressional race, it, it it asks us to develop a different level of analysis. You know, if, if all we have are city council races and maybe mayor, maybe county commissioner, well, our political factions that help produce the outcomes of those of those elections never evolve past a certain point of the game. And so that stifles not only the development of individuals, but it stifles uh, the development of entire communities to really think about the future trajectory of their state and, and, and of the communities and their counties and regions of this state. And those are things that are unfairly denied many Alabamians solely because we're black. Mm. And we're in 2022. There are many things that we that we need that energy. We need that talent. We need the we need the leadership. There are many reasons why we need to expend our energy in other ways other than asking people not to vo- violate fundamental principles of democracy. Mm-hmm. There's climate change, there's infectious disease, there's rise of political extreme. There's a lot of things we should be focusing on. Respect our right to vote should be something that we, we you know, we, we could have closed the door on that in 1965. Mm-hmm. And so I am passionate about it because it's disrespectful for us to even be using our energy in this way. Mm-hmm. But because we're from this state and from these communities, we are going to continue doing this advocacy because that's the lineage that we're from. That's the legacy of our traditions and we're not going anywhere. So if the state won't, won't accept that, then we have to continue to do litigation every year, continue to do organizing and, and, and the sorts of things that we're going to talk to you about today. But we would much rather be talking about um, astrophysics and, and unique childcare. Right. You know, it, the fact that we're stuck here, um, is is really a part of the problem in and of itself. Yeah, and Shelley, um, Evan brings up an incredible point because, I mean, the Voting Rights Act was passed in 65, and here we are decades later. I mean, why do we continue to have to have this battle uh, that you would think in this day and age our legislators, uh, our fellow citizens would want more and more people participating in the act of democracy and encouraging them to vote. But instead, it seems as though there is this this pressure to to try to oppress the vote. As we've seen in America, there are certain things that are happening. It seems as if we were progressing at one point, but unfortunately, we are still fighting for voting rights 57 years later, and we really should not be here. Um, 
the Voter Rights Act was passed before my mother was born. Born, mm-hmm. And here we are 57 years later and we're still going through the process. Um, but I would say we've had numerous states across the country pass bills and introduce legislation that falls within the realm of voter suppression. Alabama itself, we have voter suppression tactics in place concerning voting. We don't have early voting in our state. They cut off voter registration 15 days before the election. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let that sink in. Did you just say that the entire state of Alabama does not have early voting? No, we do not. We have in-person wow. absentee, so you have to provide an excuse um, when you vote. And so we do not have like the two to three weeks of early voting that other states have. So that contributes to our state having low voter turnout. We just had the lowest voter turnout on November 8th. Um, and um, the turnout was the lowest that it, it has been in 36 years. Mm. And if we were to have something such as voter um, early voting, you know, as you're out in the streets and as you're engaging people, you can tell them, hey, go to the polls to vote today or tomorrow. You're not limited to that one day of voting that we currently have in place in the state. So I'm I'm not surprised that we are here and that um, we are still fighting um this voting, this voting stuff and the redistricting stuff is all tied to um, certain people trying to keep a hold of power within our country and within our state. So it's not surprising. And it's a it's a multi-step battle. So outside of making sure the districts are drawn fairly so we can go and make a fair and adequate vote, um, we also have to consider continue to organize and advocate for other changes to be made in our state centered around voting. And in this case is centered around the congressional district. The options were limited because no one um, who would possibly support legislation that would help all Alabamians ran for Congress in my district because it's almost impossible to win. Um, And so I say um, it's a reminder of those who did the work before us in 1965, they laid the groundwork and we we're just picking up the baton and we're still carrying on. Ooh, I love that. I love that. So, um, I, can I add to that? Yeah, of course, please do. I, I think, I think one of the things that we really need to highlight in this is every time we as, um, black Americans gain any political power or it appears that we are gaining political power, there is a backlash. It goes all the way back to reconstruction. And it and 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 in recent days, as soon as President Barack Obama was elected, right, from that point forward, there's been a backlash. When we turn out in large numbers to exercise our political power, there's a backlash. It's all about keeping us held down, not being able to realize the political power that we have in our numbers in the population that we have and the, and the voter turnout that we have. So whenever we're turning out to vote in large numbers, then following that, you have voter suppression laws. You have all kinds of things that are happening. It's all about keeping us from gaining power and about keeping them and about having them keep power. So it's a power dynamic. It's what Mm -hmm. it really is. Understanding and knowing that populations change, that population change is happening all over this country that um, and I call it and it's been called the browning of America. And that's I think it's 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 it instills fear. And that's why fear politics, um, you know, fear mongering politics have been so successful because it's about fear of really losing power and us gaining power. Mm -hmm. I think. 
the folks that you are trying that you talked about who are trying to oppress the vote, let's just let's just call it what it is. It is mainly white males that still hold on to these white supremacy views. And that's what we're dealing with. It is the echoes of Jim Crow, the echoes of Reconstruction, the echoes of slavery. And it continues to, this is just a new uh, alliteration of what we've been dealing with since the beginning of this country. And it is the suppression and oppression of our black brothers and sisters. And Leticia, you spoke to this just a moment ago, just about this is a continuation of what we have experienced here in the past. So if that's the case, what can we do to stand up to these powerful individuals and demand? I mean, I know we're at court. I know you've argued before the Supreme Court, and I want to hear about those arguments. But what can we do in the streets to stand up against this kind of oppression. Evan, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's only white nationalists, like men that are, that are a part of No, it's a system. It is a system. You, you do have that contingent on the far right that are, you know, and there has been a, a market public kind of unveiling of, of white nationalist infrastructure over the last, um, seven, eight years, really, if, if like, let's say last 15 years, there's been, a, it's been more overt mainstream and things of that nature. But we also have people who, particularly in our, in our part of the country, there's a polite, passive acceptance mm-hmm. amongst white conservatives because they don't want to challenge authority within their own communities, mm-hmm. that there's a benefit analysis for many white women, even, and not only white people, there are people of color who benefit from this, from the current uh, power structure who also don't want to jeopardize their own material advantage and things like that. So we don't, you know, these are, these are calculations that people make Mm -hmm. and they make calculations about social advantage, about uh, economic competition, about political influence to say, okay, under the current system, and where I see the country going in the next 24, you know, the next by 2040, for example, 2050, will I have more? Will I and, I, and you know, even if the person is not themselves going to be alive, will I or my descendants have more or less influence mm-hmm. in a more multicultural place where voting is expansive and people can vote for who they want to vote for and move on or do does my so does my people group stand a better chance of survival if we somehow obstruct that growth of democracy and i think one of the things that has to happen is our white neighbors have to look at that question square in the face and and really uh, and sit with what comes up is there a fear that if a shalila is a governor if a Letitia, if if an evan is a governor that we're somehow going to target and discriminate groups of like, if, is that a fear that people have? And what is that related to? Mm. Is there historical evidence in the history of America of that type of oppression coming from black elected officials? I don't see any evidence of it. Right. I do see many talking points pointing to that as a, there's a fear of that. Mm-hmm. And I think the fear of the, I think one thing is confront those fears Black activists and, and, and democratic networks can't 
guide white people on doing that. There are many other folks who do that work, um, you know, and there are even some black activists that actually have written some. Ruby Sales has written some things. Resma Minicum, Dr. Dr. William Barber, Brian Stevenson. There, there are things people have written right. that folks can sit with, but I don't think it can come from the black progressive community. I think there have to be moderate and conservative yeah. white people that actually have to answer the question, where do we fit in a multicultural America? Mm-hmm. And there is a place. There is a place for white people in a multicultural America. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Birmingham two weeks ago and I took a pilgrimage over to the city jail. Why? So I could remember right. the words of that letter that Dr. King wrote from that jail cell and, right. you know, begging his white colleagues, you know, saying that you're part of the problem. You've got to get on board with this. We need your voice. So uh, amen to everything you just said. So let's pivot back to the case for just a minute. Um, can one of you speak to exactly what arguments were made, you know, before the Supreme Court justices in, in um, advocating for your case? The argument um, was given by uh, one of our attorneys from the NAACP um, Legal Defense Fund, Duell Ross. And um, the focus was on the fact that the African-American vote, the black vote in Alabama, the vote is currently diluted. Um, And the argument was that there can be a second majority map drawn. And we also place emphasis on the fact that we have a state, a Alabama uh, school board state map that is drawn um, in a manner um, where it's, it's drawn in the way that there's a second black district in the lower part of the state. And the county of Mobile is split in order to obtain this minority school board district. And so we place emphasis on our state was able to draw the state school board map in that manner. They should be able to draw the congressional map in that same manner. Um, They place emphasis on they don't want to split up Mobile County and that Mobile and Baldwin County, the two coastal counties are are one, but they split us up for the school board county. um, Just because they want to make a minority um, majority district. And so we're like, Let's do that same thing on the congressional level. And so we um, are really focusing on the fact that the black voting power, um, the black voting political power in the state is diluted and that the black population is cracked in the other in the other six congressional districts. Right now, our state is represented by six white men in Congress. I think they all got reelected besides one. Um, and then we have Terry Sewell, a black woman. And if we as minorities in the state have, have any issues, just going off of what and how we've seen our other elected members in Congress vote in Congress, we know that we can't go to them with our issues. And so we really, um, as black people in the state, can only go to our one dem- one, our one black rep, um, Terry Sewell, for our issues. And, and the issues of all 27 percent of the black population in, in Alabama shouldn't fall upon her shoulders when um, if the maps were drawn white, right, we could have two majority black districts. And so our argument was basically tied to it's been done on a similar map that was approved at the same time the congressional map was approved. Mm. Um, and the people of Alabama expressed interest on wanting that second majority black district leading up to them drawing the maps. They had public hearings across the state and the narrative and the issue that you heard the most that you heard people advocating for on a consistent basis in all our major cities was please do not dilute, dilute the black vote and make sure that we have a second 
um, congressional district where a minority candidate can possibly be elected. Um, and so that was the argument. And the, and the argument on the other side was basically that our vote isn't the, the black vote isn't diluted. And um, we have the one congressional district. And so we also know there is a there was another case that went to the Supreme Court from Louisiana with the same issue. And the Supreme Court basically told them, however, they decide in Milligan versus Merrill will be the decision that they give Louisiana. So this isn't just a black people problem in Alabama. It's a it's a problem for black people in Louisiana and possibly in the, um, in South Carolina as well. So the dilution of the black vote is occurring across the South. Mm. So, Evan, tell us how you felt about the justices questions and responses to to the arguments in this case. Uh, I was a little surprised by how um, disinterested they seemed in some of the the state of Alabama's arguments. They said several times, "Hey, you know, like they would preface preface their questions to the state of uh, I think it was the state solicitor. Um, some of your they would say, you know, some of your arguments are too far out there. Like they would preface the question like that and they say, but." The one thing I want you to speak to is, um, you know, your understanding of race neutrality in the the, the building and the design of political uh, maps. So just to preface a, a question like that, like they didn't do that with our attorney, for example, with it when uh, I think I think it was the some the, someone from the United States Solicitor General's office who also argued um, in support of our position. They didn't preface their questions. To that, to that attorney in the same way. So I found that to be interesting. I also found that they weren't, they didn't seem satisfied by the state of Alabama's articulation of, you know, why they should depart from their past precedent with regard to like how, how they've settled some of these, some of these issues around the application of section two of the voting rights act. So there's an argument that the state of Alabama is making that would essentially be a departure from things that the court has said prior to now, even in the Shelby versus Holder decision, which uh, also looked at the Voting Rights Act. In that in that case, it looked at Section Five of the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. and essentially undercut it and, and, right. and gutted it. That 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 case also originated here in Alabama, but in the opinion, in the majority opinion of that case, they said part of the reason that we don't need Section Five to play the role that it's playing is because we have Section Two. Section five, it involved preclearance. So that meant that the D- Department of Justice would be a, would had had the authority to review political maps drawn by southern states before they were implemented mm. to basically, you know, to, to, to pre-clear them or not to say this passes constitutional uh, smell test or, or no go back to the drawing board. Right. So we don't have that function anymore. And and in the opinion for that case. Uh, they're saying, look, Southern states have evolved. We're not in the 60s. But let's say I'm wrong. Even if I'm wrong, we have Section 2. Because in Section 2, if there are certain violations going on, citizens can can litigate. They can raise claims. And so that's that's what we did in this case. So And that, that's why we won at the lower court where there were three justices, one from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and two from the North Alabama Federal District all appointed by Republican judges, and two of them were appointed by President Trump. They ruled in our favor unanimously, 
and said it would be overwhelmingly likely that if we took the case to trial, we would show that the state of Alabama violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act on, on the basis of the court's prior rulings on, you know, on how to a- actually apply a Section 2 analysis. So the state of Alabama is coming in and saying, well, what you've said about application of a Section 2 analysis is wrong, um, and, and the court didn't seem to buy their argument, which was surprising to me because you have on the court right now several justices that have written extensively about their discomfort with the Voting Rights Act. So it seemed like this was serving them up an opportunity to, to actually push the envelope and look for a legal theory that would give them the justification to um, to narrow the space for the federal government to intervene in terms of local uh, electoral, you know, systems. And it didn't seem like, at least publicly in the room that day, that they were given the the, the, the argument from the state. That surprised me. Honestly, uh, you know, and then the other thing I'll say that was surprising was the exchange that uh, Justice um, Justice Jackson had with with the state of Alabama around the, the state's argument about using race in consideration of political map making violates uh, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And she basically used a, a, what they call originalist argument. And this has been, this was popularized by justice Scalia and mm-hmm. justice Thomas who have the, they have the intellectual anchor, you know, just rest in peace to justice Scalia, but justice Thomas living on, right. they have the intellectual anchor of the court right now with that type of thinking. And she used that as a, as a framework to say, all right, well, if we're talking about what the founding fathers said, and what the people who passed the amendment said, if, if that is the argument we need to focus on, then let's look at what was being said when the 14th Amendment passed. Mm-hmm. And they were explicitly focused on race and on the, the quality of life and the treatment of formerly enslaved African-American people. So, And that's written in the congressional testimony leading up to the passage of those amendments. Um, there's, you know, countless evidence that she supported in her argument. So that was a, that was a show. That was a, a moment that seemed to almost be like a Hollywood moment. But it, again, it was, it was profound to me to think about how in the history of the Supreme court in this country, there are so few moments that, where, where, uh, the court is actually looking at race in that way. And, and mm-hmm. it's in his relationship to the 13th, 14th and 15th amendment. Right. Um, so, you know, those were the two things that I was thinking the most about that day. So Letitia, I want to ask you this. I mean, the court has not issued a ruling yet, and I'm not asking you to make any predictions, but how are you feeling about what might come from the Supreme court when it has to do with this case? And then overall, do you think there's going to be a continuation of the dismantling of the voting rights act? So I am an eternal optimist. Good. <laughs> and uh, the reason that I'm, I am an eternal optimist is because the alternative is, um, is untenable to me, right? So I agree with, with Evan and in, in, in his characterization of what we witnessed at, at the Supreme Court. Um, I, um, if I were to put all of my um, hope into what I heard 
in the case, in the trial, with the questions that the judges were asking, the answers that they were receiving, I would say that that it should be a slam dunk. That it should be, it should be if if it is if 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 the ruling is in line with the rule of law, in line with the precedent they've set over many 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 decades, then it should be a slam dunk. I mean, and even Justice Sotomayor said that. Um, you know, in, in, in during the argument that it should be a slam dunk that this case um, and those maps violate, you know, Section two of the Voting Rights Act. Right. So I am and I have felt all along and I've said this and my colleagues with me here will will tell you that I felt all along that um, that we should we have we, we stand a really good chance of, of, of the rule of law winning good. in this case. And. I um, hold on to that. I believe that. I do believe, however, if the alternative happens, um, we have no, the Voting Rights Act is an empty vessel. Uh, We will have no Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. We will be um, in a position where uh, Black political power is non-existent and, and other states will follow Alabama. So I think that for us, for democracy, we have to win this case. This case should be settled uh, based on the law. If it is settled based on the law and based on the precedent, we win. Um, so I, I can't imagine, I, I, I can't even imagine it going another way. I, I, I refuse really to imagine it going any other way. Uh, because I know that once that happens, you know, where we are. But I also know that no matter what happens in this country, no matter what happens in this particular case, that we will continue to fight. We will continue to strategize. We will continue to organize. We will continue to vote. Um, and we will continue to, our population will continue to grow. And and the trajectory that we're on not only in Alabama, but in this country, cannot be stopped by one Supreme Court ruling. We will and we can, and we will continue to rise. We will continue to fight. Our ancestors fought with far less resources than we have today, and they got us where we are now. We are not going to stop. We will never let this one thing stop us. We will continue. We will continue. We are we are not going anywhere, and we will continue to grow. So, um, I think that um, we will continue to be a force to be reckoned with. Young people. One of the things that I that I said about this case is it has given us an opportunity. This case, as well as Dobbs and some other some of the other rulings and things that have happened both at the state and federal level has given young people the opportunity to see the rights that they have enjoyed from the day they were born can easily be taken away from them i think that it is it, i think that it is the one one of the things that have really caught their attention that have shaken and awakened them and it is evidenced by the way that young people turned out to vote in this midterm election. And I don't think that it's an anomaly. I think it will continue. So I think that the next generation, the current generation is going to continue the fight and we will continue to fight and we will win this fight. 
I love the optimism. That's what a great word of hope to, to end on. Well, Evan Milligan, uh, Shalila Dowdy, and Letitia Jackson, thank you so much. I rem- Just listening to you talk, I remember the, the great words of John Lewis, uh, who said that voting was almost sacred, and you are continuing his legacy. So thank you for all the work you're doing. But before we let you go, Missy's got one last question for you. So uh, Evan and Shalila and Leticia, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of the work that you're doing in our conversation today, what is your more to tell? And we'll go in alphabetical order. So Leticia, <laughs> we'll let you go. No, wait. <laughs> wow, you know your alphabet there. <laughs> so my more to tell is stay tuned. Ooh. This mm. is the beginning, not the end. Young people in this country will save our democracy. They will continue to show up and show out. And no matter what roadblocks are put in our way, we will knock them down, step over them, go around them, just as our ancestors did. I love that. Okay, Shalila? My more to tell is that um, um, the work that we're doing is a marathon. And um, the work that we're doing is not something that it's new to us. And so um, just know that everyone who's who's a plaintiff in this case and who's involved in this movement, you know, we're here. We're here for the long haul and just be on the lookout for us and share the information that you see about the case, any articles. Um, it was mentioned how can um, like what can be done? just talk about the case. Cause now that we did, now that we've been in front of the Supreme court, the, the chatter and the discussion has died down and it'll, it'll rise up again once the um, opinion comes out, but um, just talk about the case and know that um, these organizers on this call in Alabama, um, we're in this for the long haul. Love it. Excellent. Okay. Evan, what you got for us? Yeah, I was, I was joking with Cliff with your uh, production uh, person about um, how he had the picture of, Indiana, the poster of Indiana Jones in the background. And I remember, I think it was the third installment of that series where, um, the whole, where he's searching for the Holy grail. And he had at towards the end of the film, he's, uh, he has to go on this precipice and he basically like the grail is on the other side, but there's no bridge. And so the, according to the Lord, you have to have a faith to walk across to get to where, and if you don't believe in it, you know, you fall or, or maybe if you don't step right. So he throws the sand on the invisible thing and finds a bridge and all of that. And I feel like there are just these moments in American history. Letitia brought up reconstruction. And I think about, you know, what was that? What did that feel like at the end of the Civil War when you had this whole history of period that had come to an end and nobody knew what was coming next? Or what did that feel like in 1877 uh when the federal government pulled the troops back out of the South and that, 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 that 12 years of period uh, where you had, you know, more equitable voting rights came to a swift end. Nobody knew, at least in our communities, no one knew what was coming next or how we were survived. That's where we are right now. And we can either stand on the bridge and, and look for people to give us, you know, um, escapist, things around fear or, or, or hatred of certain groups to help us avoid taking a step. Or we can actually look forward with some faith, with some hope, 
with some actual trust in our democratic principles and take a step. And that's the same, what I said about, you know, there is a future for white people here. I mean, there's a future outside of this superior inferiority thing. There's like, there's a future without a foot on the back of other racial groups. Mm-hmm. And there's a future for black people in this country uh, that's outside of the, the framework we've existed in. We all have to sort of take a step to think beyond where we are to, to, to take that, to take that next step. And voting is a, is, is really the sand that we have to put to find the bridge. Permanent voting rights protection is the sand that we have to put to find the invisible bridge. The more voting we have, the, 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 the more we have institutions that can push back against political extremism, against corruption, against things like that, that actually dissuade us from even believing in our own democracies. And so if y'all want to, to know more about that, please join. I go to poweronthelinein.org. If we lose our case, if we win our case, we're still doing the advocacy to secure permanent voting rights protections for all Americans. And we hope that y'all could go there to learn more, inf- to, to get more information. I love that. And we'll put that in the show notes to make certain everybody has the link uh, uh, for that website. Well, Evan, Shalila, Leticia, thank you so much for being with us at Good Faith Weekly. It has been an honor. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Having us. Thank you. Missy, what an important conversation that we just had about voters' rights. I agree. I will say that since starting this little podcast with you, mm-hmm. I have learned more about the Supreme Court than I did in, I don't know, what was that? Forever? 13? Yeah, ever. <laughs> yeah. Ever. So it's 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 really interesting to hear about an actual case that's going through and seeing people who are actually working on this case, who are fighting it and just their passion and uh, for the, for voters rights is just uh, incredible to see. You know, uh, that's so important for you to say because you and I are part of an organization that comments and provides opinion pieces about the news, about everything that's going on within the world. And that's important. I mean, it, it really is. We, you know, offer editorials that discuss what's going on, try to create theological uh, parameters to interpret what's going on. But what we just discussed with these individuals, these are people on the front lines mm-hmm. who are trying to make a real change. And I was just so inspired by them. I was too. And I, I think, I can't remember who said it, but talking about the fact that I think it uh, was Shalila talking about the fact that her mother was born after the voters rights Mm -hmm. act was passed. And then thinking about, you know, some of the conversations we've had in the recent uh, months about the Dobbs decision and that you and I have never lived in, you know, a pre Roe v. Wade world. Mm -hmm. We've never lived in a pre voting rights act world. And just the realization of, again, we've said it before, I'll say it again, how much we've taken for granted that these things are there and have always been there and they'll continue to function and we don't have to do anything about it. And like Evan was saying, he said, you know, we have to continue this work no matter what the outcome of this case is, we will continue this work. But at the same time, there are all these other issues that we, that are also on fire that we should be able to focus on. And we, the reality is it's, it is such a shame that this is a, a, a drum that we are still having to beat that 
voters' rights are, you know, for everyone and they need to be protected for everyone. That should not be something we are debating in the year of our Lord, 2022. And yet here we are. And we're still having to bang this drum and we're still having to get the message out that um, everybody deserves and has the right to vote. And I think that is such a commentary upon the reality of what a democracy is about, because for every step forward that we make at, towards that more perfect union that Jefferson tried to inspire us to move towards, there are steps back. And I remember the late John Lewis talking about, we have made such great, great strides in civil rights, but at the same time, there's so much more work to do because those in power, the most powerful systems that exist within our, uh, our environment, our social structure, they're not going to give up that power willingly. And I remember our conversation with Dr. Miguel de del Tor uh, just weeks ago talking about the importance of that. Mm-hmm that we have to get out of this mindset of winning and losing because the reality is the system is so powerful that we're not necessarily ever going to win and it's hard to define what winning means but we are in this continuous conversation and struggle to make these systems better to make these systems more just and when i heard from our guest today about not only their struggle, but their fight for justice, and in particular voting rights, it just reminded me that this is a fight that is never going to cease. We're always going to be involved in it. We always need to be fighting for this. And the reality is, this is Jesus' kind of work. Right. Jesus never promised us a sweet by and by necessarily what he did promise us is this struggle and this journey for a better world as it is in heaven we always want to remember that incredible prayer that he taught the disciples seeking the kingdom of god here on earth as it is in heaven and so we're in this constant struggle for justice and for equality uh, and it, it's just never going to see. So, I mean, what these individuals are doing, what Evan and the rest of them are doing, is kingdom work. It's Jesus work. It's gospel work. It really is. I just was floored. I know you and I both were mouth agape when we learned that uh, Alabama does not have early voting. What the holy heaven! And and so <laughs> yes, it it just reminds me. It is so embarrassing. Reminds me of of the privilege the naivety that i have been able to exist and navigate this world within this bubble that um i i just i i hate that i i live by the when we know better we do better and i'm trying every day to know better and do better and to realize that complacency is is just not acceptable Mm -hmm. um like you said like you said we have to continue to fight for these things because if we don't and i think we've seen over the last 50 years where we've just assumed that was always going to be this way or that or like okay we signed this one thing so that's over and done and 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 know that there are, are you know 
people and systems at place in the world that will continue to try to gain control or keep control or get more control or whatever the case may be. So yeah, we were just both shocked to hear that. And I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that. And so I will be looking for ways to, to be better and do better and help and support the efforts to expand voting rights. Absolutely. And, you know, we keep going back to this and we talked a little bit about in the interview and, you know, the great late John Lewis, you know, referred to voting as almost a sacred right, which I totally agree with. But in a democracy, voting is the most powerful tool that any citizen possesses. Mm-hmm. And to think there are systems in place that are attempting to prevent that action mm-hmm. or to limit that action goes against any concept of freedom and democracy that we think of. It is this denial of representation. And when we think of denial of representation, we're also thinking of denial of human existence. Because if you do not have a right to vote, then what they are telling you is you do not have a right to exist. And that, or maybe not to exist in a way that I'm not defining you. Exactly. Like you can exist in such a way that I will allow you to exist in this world. There you go. Absolutely. And so that is what we're fighting for. That is what is so important in this discussion. You know, whether it is the voting rights of people of color or minorities in this country, or whether it is the acknowledgement that based upon sexual identity that you do not exist as a person mm-hmm. that that it's about personhood it's about representation it's about how does god create you and see you and relate to you what we want to do in this country and what we have historically done in this country is we have tried to define that we have tried to interject our own understanding of what that means and therefore, we subjugate and oppress individuals who are different than us. And that we say God relates to those who are privileged, those who look like us, and those who are privileged like us. But God, while he or she relates to those who are different than us, we have a special relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. And that totally goes against the overall theological understanding of the Omega Dei made in the image of God. Because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, what your sexual orientation is, what socioeconomic status you find. You are made in the image of God, and God loves you exactly the way you are. Therefore, within humanity, based upon Jesus' teaching, love God and love neighbor, you have full equality with everybody else. That's a good word. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, we will be following uh, this case and uh, the Supreme Court as they issue a ruling, which I believe I read wouldn't be till the spring or maybe summer. Right. Um, Uh, Clearly, expediency is... um, (laughs) Their strength. I'm sure they have a few things going on. But. I have a few things going on, and you know, I mean, 
we'll make up the court is the way it is these days. So we'll right. see what happens. So we'll keep our eyes on this and be sure to, to discuss it once that is handed down. But we yeah. hope that our listeners have enjoyed learning a little bit from those who are yeah, directly absolutely. involved with this case and spoke, I mean, so inspirationally to, to their mission and, and, you know, their fight uh, for justice. And, and we just were cheering them on and supporting them. And uh, we look forward to seeing what comes next. Absolutely. And well, we hope, we look forward to seeing what comes well, up next. Well, I mean, yeah. true. But there's going to be a decision, and we already talked to all three uh, interviewees today. They're more willing to come back and talk about this case after uh, a ruling has been issued. But uh, this is an extremely important topic uh, for us as a democracy. So uh, stay tuned. We, we hope for the best. But until that ruling comes, there is one ruling that we can all agree on upon, Missy, and that is we wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Absolutely. We will be back for a little post-Thanksgiving episode next week, right? Absolutely. Okay. I've got my... My big pants ready to put on and got stretchy pants. I got ready my stretchy to go. pants on. Excellent. Yeah, ready to get after it. So. Okay, so we will talk to you all next week. All right. Take care. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>